Well, we've been talking this week about how we grow, just how we take up our responsibility in that, realizing that Jesus has done everything we need to establish our relationship with God. But what we're after in these habits of grace is increasing fellowship with God. When my children are walking according to the ways of the Tanis family, there's a kind of fellowship that is just delightful. There's an affection and an intimacy and an enjoyment of one another that is incredible. But when my children may not be walking in the ways of the Tanis family, the relationship is unchanged. They will always be my sons and daughters. Don and I will always love them as mothers, as a mother and father. But when they're in rebellion against our ways, there is an effect that has on the fellowship between the father and the child. So it never changes the relationship, but the fellowship is either enhanced or deterred. It's, it's diminished by rebellion. And actually, a parent who is unchanged regardless of the child's way of living, is not a good parent. God promises because he loves us, he'll discipline us, for instance. If he, if he didn't love us, he wouldn't discipline us. He wouldn't care what we did. And so we need to realize that there can be an established relationship with God that never changes because it's by faith in Christ and his finished work but there can be an effect on a relationship with God. The Bible frequently will say things like, my loving kindness is toward those who fear me. And I know, I, I mentioned this book I'm writing, I really am going to get it done. Uh, 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. No doubt the chapter that's going to cause the most anger and resistance is I don't think we should still say God loves us unconditionally. I, I, don't, I don't think that's actually something in our day that's a helpful thing to say. Now, in the introduction to this book I'm writing, I'm saying I actually don't care if you keep saying these things. What I do want Christians to do is think about what we say and if it's biblical and if it's helpful given our context. Here's why I don't think we should say that God's love is unconditional. Because the Bible quite frequently talks about God's love based on certain conditions. Without the forgiveness, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. My loving kindness is toward those who fear me. Jesus commands us to abide in his Father's love just as he has always abided in his Father's love. In other words, you can abide in the love of God as one of his children or you can live a life that isn't abiding in his love. Which means there's, there's a, a relative expression of and experience of that love, depending on what you do. Now, in a very real sense, in Christ, we've accomplished those things. So here's the point. Jesus meets all the conditions. He, he meets the conditions of holiness and righteousness and the shedding of blood for forgiveness of sin so that love can be, be received and expressed. So it, it ends up being unconditional for us, 
but not because there are no conditions. And I think there was a time in the history of the church, probably several times, where you could use that expression and people would load in an understanding of the justice of God, the wrath of God, the sacrifice of Christ that bore God's righteous judgment for us. And so then when you said his love is unconditional, people understood it as conditional, but those conditions are met in Jesus. When you say that to people in our society today, most people I interact with think that means God doesn't care that much about sin. His law is unconditional. He just says, oh, you know, we'll just let bygones be bygones. I don't take it. Nah, we're good. That's not a big deal. And, and I think that's a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. Because I frequently hear the cross talked about as God's love for us. But do you know what it is equally? His wrath. It's equally his justice. It's equally his holiness. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's righteous, wrathful judgment. And that's what's happening on the cross. The character of God is displayed on the cross in an incredibly holistic way. It's not just his love, which is 90% of what we talk about when we talk about the cross. Because for God so loved the world, he sent his son to die on a cross. Yes. But why? Why? Because his righteous judgment had to be satisfied. And so we recognize the unconditionality of his love for us. Because out of his love, he has met those conditions. And so I, I do think there's a lot of truth to that saying, but I think most people, when they hear it, say God just shrugs his shoulders to sin. And he doesn't really care that much about it. Like, I'll talk to people sometime, and they say, you know, I'm a really patient person. It doesn't bother me much when people do things that are wrong. Right? And I'll watch them, and I'll say, you know what? I don't think you're patient. I just don't think you care. There's a big difference between not caring and being patient. Actually, the more you care, the more patience you need. And God couldn't care more than he does about sin and evil. And so it requires incredible patience for God to be patient towards sin and evil and sinners and evildoers. So, so Jesus has met all the conditions. And we recognize that these habits of grace are what we avail ourselves to to take hold of Jesus' finished work, progress in our relationship with God, and grow in our intimacy with Him and enjoyment of Him, and glorify Him by that. And glorifying Him is the very goal of our existence. So we've been saying these nine things are what we focus on. There are other things Christians do that I don't think are biblical commands or non-negotiable ways we grow, I think you can grow wonderfully if you never experience those things, like journaling. Uh, and I'm thankful for that because I've tried to journal. I, it, I respect people who do. I, I get about a week and a half in and I'm like, blah, and I, I don't journal. And, and you may think less of me because of that as an avid journaler you may be, but the Bible nowhere says, thou shalt journal. Right? And I respect, I do, I respect people who do. By the same token, many of us who have had children have found raising children profoundly sanctifying. Right? To the point where you may be led to say something that's actually foolish, which is you can never really understand the love of God until you're a father, which I hear people say. And sometimes I actually do say, well, Jesus seemed to be okay in his growth, and so did the Apostle Paul. 
Right? So let's not overstate things because it ha- they happen to be ways God profoundly grew us. Right? So John and I were athletes. John was a really good athlete, like legendary kind of athlete. And he will tell you and I will tell you that God used playing sports for a long time profoundly in shaping our character and teaching us to be Christian men and teaching us all kinds of things about being disciples. It's amazing how powerfully God can use those things and did. I say to people, I didn't have a dad at home, I say, football taught me what your father's supposed to teach you. I just didn't have a dad. And, and so obviously that's the ideal, but, but, but sports were huge for me. But I would never say, you know, unless you play sports, you can't really be a really strong Christian. You'll be all right. right? So what we don't want to do is, is take our experiences and the ways God grew us and make that the standard for other people. When it's in those subjective things that, that are helpful. I, I talk to people that say, um, I never worship God better than when I'm surfing. Well, I'm just trying not to drown when I surf. So that's not going to work for me, right? And, and so let's not take our experiences or even the timing of our experiences and project that on, on other people and assume that must be how you grow if it's going to be good. But these things, these nine things, I really believe are these non-negotiable biblical ways we grow. That if you are not, at least to some degree, attending to these things, there will be some significant gaps in how you grow. The positive flip side of that is if you seek to cultivate lives devoted to these nine practices, these habits, these customs, these just, it's the way you roll. If you devote yourself to that, you can count on God's word when it tells you, you will grow. And as I've been saying all week, and it takes patient endurance. And I'll have students come to me and say, you know, my, my, Christian, my, my faith, is, I'm struggling in my faith. I'm weak. I'm, I'm, I'm embroiled in sin. And I'll, and I'll just say something real simple that seems so simplistic and even legalistic to my students. And they'll say, I'll say, well, you're reading your Bible. And, you know, they, they'll want me to psychoanalyze them for half an hour to get to why they're doing it. And I'll, and, and I'll just say, you're reading your Bible, and they'll say, well, I tried that. So there's 18-year-olds there saying, I tried that. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they'll say, I read it pretty consistently for a long time. I said, like, how long? Like three months. And I'm thinking, you don't have a clue what patient endurance means. I mean, Please step back and realize that Christian living and and discipleship is a long-haul process that you devote yourself to, and sometimes you don't see the fruit. It's imperceptible very often. I believe God's always working, but often imperceptibly. Isn't that what Jesus was always trying to get across to people when he was describing the kingdom to them? It was, the kingdom was always defying their expectations. And he was saying, oh, you don't understand that the kingdom smart starts really small and really seemingly insignificant and inconsequential. And then it grows way slower than you'd think it would. And often shows up in ways you weren't expecting and aren't even sure you like that much. But that's how it grows. Just get used to Jesus doing things very differently than we would normally do if we were the Messiah. And let's thank God we're not, none of us. 
He is, and we don't need another one. So these nine ways, word, prayer, worship, giving, serving, proclamation, fellowship, suffering, and missions, include lots of other things that the Bible doesn't command, but it also, these nine also include other things the Bible does command, like the Lord's Supper, like baptism, like church discipline, and then the specifics of it. When you say word, it's not just reading your Bible, it's sitting under the authoritative preaching of the word in a local church context. Or even sitting under the preaching of the word in a non-local church context like this, that we're hopefully all being edified and growing. I believe God works every time his word is open and quoted and referred to as our authority. I believe he works, even if it's imperceptible. So there are things that are commanded in the Bible that aren't on explicit on this list, but I would include in every one of these or several of these. As we do that, and we said these all work interdependently, right? Last night we talked about the word as this anchor for our lives. The word of God is what gives us the understanding of God, ourselves, what the purpose of our lives are, how we get there. It is this glorious way we get to commune with our God and grow closer to him. You can't obey the Great Commission or the Great Commandment. You can't obey, go and make disciples, or love God and love others as you love yourself unless you know what love means, unless you know what God means by that. And so the Word becomes this anchor for us, which means we need to devote ourselves to the study of Scripture, the reading of Scripture, the memorization, meditation on, the conversing with the Bible open in front of us, doing counseling with the Bible in our minds, and, and understanding the Bible well enough to live it out instinctively. And again, it, it can feel very rote in the beginning. And over time, the Bible becomes more and more of a friend. But you need lots of time with this friend. This friend is, is strange to us very often. This Bible is written thousands of years ago in, in radically different cultures and times and and structures, and languages, and customs than ours. And so it's important, if you're going to understand it, to understand all of those things. That's the context of this teaching. But what you'll end up finding is the, in the most fundamental and important ways, those people are the same as we are. This, is, this realization actually is when the Bible really started to come alive to me. I remember reading, I think, I think it was in Exodus. Remember, I was in my teens, and I was, I was reading the Exodus story and how, how often the Israelites would just act like these petulant little immature uh, spoiled brats. It was just unbelievable. And God would provide incredibly and miraculously and generously, and they'd be whining the next day. And I kept saying that, I kept saying to myself, Lord, why in the world did you pick these people? They're a bunch of losers. Start over. And I am, I'm having this internal conversation. And I remember thinking, wait, I am no different than that nation than those people. If I'm going to be honest with myself, I need to get off this high horse looking down on the nation of Israel. I remember I, for years I hated Jacob. I hated Jacob. I, I saw myself as way above Jacob. And I mean, my man swindled his old blind father. He conned him. He betrayed him. 
and his doofus brother in the process, right? And, and he did it so connivingly. I mean, his name means the deceiver, the heel grabber. And he was always conniving. And, I, and even, even uh, when he wrestles with God, he, it just seems to be so self-centered. And, and I just didn't like him. And, and I remember over a little period of time, I started to think about it. And I thought, oh, I've got all of that in my heart. I've got, there's nothing in Jacob that I'm not learning to see in myself. And Jonathan Edwards said one time, whenever you see an, uh, an error, a fault, or a sin in someone else... In that moment, ask God to show you the way that very same sin lurks in your own heart. And, and you'll get knocked off your pedestal and you'll be able to relate to any sinner. It's amazing how we'll see someone commit great evil and we'll suddenly say, they must be completely insane. Not most of the time. You know, Nazis weren't insane. They weren't. You, I mean, any sin, a rebellion against God, is a kind of insanity. But, but sort of, oh, they, they had psychosis. No, that's, that's actually an excuse both for them and for ourselves. Do you know Hitler loved dogs? Do you know Hitler loved classical music? And so there could be all this goodness woven into the profound evil. And the human condition means that none of us is exempt from thinking of ourselves as desperately wicked. And then God moves in and he changes our hearts. And so the word is what examines those hearts. The word is what pulls us out of our natural comfortability and natural inclinations and confronts us with the reality of our sin and the amazing grace of Jesus. So that's the word. We talked about prayer last night, prayerfulness throughout our days, singular prayer by ourselves, and corporate prayer are all Wonderful things we need to devote ourselves to. And I think I mentioned prayer of all these nine is the hardest for me. It, it is a struggle. I think it's related to why journaling's hard for me and writing letters is hard for me. I'm an impatient person. And prayer and journaling takes patience. And, and legible handwriting is another. Anyway, which I don't have. But um, that would be nice. But so prayer is what we devote ourselves to depending on the Spirit to do it. Now, we move to one we haven't talked about yet, worship. And this, like prayer and word, needs to have an individual, set-aside, focused time of worship. It needs to have a corporate dimension to it as well. And it needs to have a worshipfulness throughout our day aspect to it as well. I would say that for all of these habits of grace. There needs to be an individual focused discipline time, a corporate expression of these things, and a constancy expression of these things. So we, we seek to be men and women who worship God. And, and I think for many of us, this is a greatly missing component. I think most serious Christians I know read their Bible, they spend time in the Word, and they pray. But I don't think most Christians I know, I don't think, I could be wrong about this, but in my conversations, I don't think I am. I don't think Word and prayer always also includes worship. And I think there's something tremendously truncated, tremendously insufficient, incomplete, if time in God's word and time in the presence of God on our knees 
does it naturally have and lead to an expression of adoration? We, we can't just rush into our shopping list that we present before God in our prayer after we read our Bibles and think there's something sufficient about that time with the Lord. Remember, this is time of growing intimacy and delighting in God. And how do you delight in something if you don't put into expression that delight? I think the, the delight will be stifled. I, I could tell you about my favorite food or my favorite music or the, the places that I love to go or the people in my life especially who I delight in. And, and if I don't express that to you, it's terribly insufficient in the honor I want to pay to those things and people. But when I express those things, it deepens my worshipfulness. Adoration unexpressed keeps us from deepening that adoration. It just stays right where it is. But I think putting it into words, especially when you put it into words that are sung, the Bible talks a lot about singing. I will talk to Christians, they say, I don't like to sing. And sometimes I'll say, well, why do you want to go to heaven then? Because read the descriptions of heaven. There's amazing singing. And I know you might not have a voice you enjoy listening to, but that's not the point. Your lovely voice is not the point of worship. It's, it's putting heart language into words it, that is very much helped by singing. So I think I may have mentioned one of the nights that, that I try to make singing a regular part of my time with the Lord. This morning, um, the hymn that I sang was, Christ the Lord has risen today. No, no. Um, on this terrestrial ball, uh, uh, anyway. What's the say? No, uh, uh, it doesn't matter, I suppose, but it was a good time I had with the Lord, and um, <laughs> it, was, it, it was good, and, and there's a tenderness to that. I'm not naturally tender. I've become incredible. Like, talk to people who know, knew me. My nickname was Nails when I was a kid, because I was tough as nails, they said, and, and I've become so tender. I don't think a week goes by I don't cry in some way, for good reason, and by the way, Please, can we just agree never to apologize for crying? It's the first thing most people do when they start to cry in front of people. And, and most of the time when I hear people apologize for crying, it's, they're crying for a really good reason. I mean, they're talking about the loss of a loved one, and they start to cry, and they say, I'm sorry. Sorry for what? And you know what? We should sometimes apologize for not crying. You know, we're talking about something gut-wrenchingly heartbreaking. We should say, you know what? I'm really sorry I'm not crying right now. That, that should be more our inclination, right? Because we should feel depth of emotion in life. And, and God gave us human emotions to reflect the profoundly deep emotional life of himself. And so we've got to do something to fire up our emotions, especially those of us who, don't, who are emotionally constipated. And I meet a lot of Christians I would describe that way. Now, some of you, I, I suppose, need to learn to hold it in until you get home because it's not helpful sometimes to just lose it. Like somebody's got to give the eulogy at the funeral, right? But And somebody's got to hold it together, but... But many of us, 
I, I think, have all of these unexpressed emotions that are there that we need to practice expressing. I really do. I, I think we need to practice this. A affective expression doesn't come naturally for a lot of people. Some people are highly emotionally intelligent. And it's not a problem to feel the right emotion at the right time and actually express it. That's a beautiful thing. I think that's godly. And I think emotional maturity, emotional intelligence, uh, feeling the right thing at the right time and expressing it in the right way at the right time, is the height of sanctification. I think that's sort of where it all finally shows up when it's arrived in a really solid place. I do, because then that just naturally leads to right behavior. You don't even have to emphasize the behavior when you're thinking and then your affections are in the right place. The right behavior just flows. And so, so singing for me, I, did I say I'm never in a good mood in the morning when I wake up? Did I, ever, did I say that in here? I'm never, yeah, I, I'm one of those people who just always feels like I just, I don't want to get up right now. I, no matter how much I sleep, no matter, no matter I just, for some reason, I, I think it's blood sugar. Some people think it's a spiritual problem. I just think... It's just how I'm, and so for me, to, to be in a good place when I walk out the door requires that I, I, in, I tune my heart to God and, and cultivate some tenderness toward Him and express affection toward God and tell Him in song how much I love Him. Imagine if Christians did that regularly in their private time with God, what our corporate sung worship would look like. I think for maybe the majority of Christians, the first time they've sung all week, express their affection to God in a real heart way, I think the first time most Christians have done it is when they show up on Sunday morning in the gathered worship time. And it's like starting, you're, you're just at the beginning of the entrance ramp, right? Wouldn't it be great if Christians came to church in their worship expression already on the freeway firing down the road? Worship leaders would have a way easier time. I mean, the first 20 minutes of, of worship, ask worship leaders, is like, oh, man, here we go, everybody. Can we please act awake? It's just amazing how challenging it can be to, to and I think a big part of the reason is we don't have private, affective expression to God that expresses our, our adoration of him. That has a tenderness and an open-heartedness to it. Again, I, it's not going to get in the book, but, and I actually agree with a lot of the sentiment of this statement, but I hear conservatives especially say, facts don't care about your feelings. You know, a conservative pun that has made that big. And there's a lot of truth to that, but you know what? God does. <laughs> God cares about your feelings. And I do. I really do. Now, I, I, I want to be helpful in helping, and this whole week is helping our affections get in, aligned with what's true, with what the facts are, yes. But this sort of dismissal of feelings, in the midst of trying to combat overly emphasizing feelings, let's, let's not always swing in the pendulum to the extremes. Yes, we can't be dictated by our feelings, but what we want eventually is affections that are the result of transformed thinking. And so we worship the word of, uh, we worship by the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's how we worship. Jesus told the, the Samaritan woman that it's not about where you do it, 
It's not even about the style that you do it or when you do it. It's a matter of doing it according to the Word of God, spirit, truth, and spirit. And the spirit always takes over everything, our thinking, our affections, our behavior, all of it. So worshipfulness and waiting to feel like it is not what it's about. It's not hypocrisy to express with your body and your words affection for God um, when it's not coming naturally. It's amazing to me how often I will start worshiping God, expressing affection and adoration and not feel like it, but 90 seconds in, I start to. Yes? And I must tell you, it's amazing how anonymous I think most people feel when they're in gathered worship time. Because I've had the experience many times of, of feeling cold toward the Lord. And, and just feel like, wow, I am just going through the motions singing this song right now. And I'll, I'll just catch sight of a brother or a sister pouring out her, her heart to God with such obvious, heartfelt meaning. And she has no idea that in that moment she's functioning as a priest to me saying, come on, Eric, let's go. I'm heading there. You coming with me? And, and we need to realize, not, not to put on a show or not to be self-conscious, but to realize that we're in the gathered people of God, that you have the potential for being an encouragement to opening hearts or a discouragement. I mean, I was, I was worshiping in the back on Sunday, and some dude was watching a video on his phone with headphones in during the worship time. It was discouraging to me, you know? Uh, so, so just let's realize when we're in the corporate gathering that we're there. I, I will hear worship leaders say, it's just you and the Lord right here. Just you and the Lord. And I'm thinking, well, if that's the case, I could have saved gas money coming over here this morning, right? It's not just me and the Lord. Sometimes it is. But when I gather with God's people, there's something profoundly elevated in that where it's God's people in gathered corporate worship, which has a profundity to it, a depth to it, a vibrancy to it, a helpfulness to it that my time alone doesn't. Make sense? So there should be a worshipfulness. So you see a waterfall, like I saw yesterday down in Kings Canyon, and I never just want to say, wow, what a glorious waterfall. I want to say, what a glorious waterfall. How about the God who made it? I want that to be a conduit to glorifying God. I don't just want to say to my daughter, Carol, soda pop, you are, she's working in wagon trade. She really gives me a hard time every time I say her real name around here. But um, I say, you are beautiful, or, or you're, you're just got all these leadership abilities. And I always want to say, isn't it great? God made you that way. God gave you those gifts. Let's worship him for it right now. And, and any time we recognize something good in creation or human beings, let's, let's truly value the thing and the person. And let's not rush by it. That's, that's actually not valuing it. If we rush by it. But let's truly enjoy a waterfall and the way it sparkles and the way it sounds and the way gravity functions to make this glorious work of art. Let's really enjoy it but not terminate there and worship the God who made it. That's 
what it means to be worshipful throughout, throughout our days. All right, any thoughts, uh, helpful ways you've cultivated worship in your life? Yeah, Nate. Amen. Amen. And it's an entertainment mentality we bring to it. It's a performance mentality we bring to it. It doesn't mean, on the other hand, we don't care about beauty and excellence and harmony. And those are all ways God's glorified. It doesn't mean we don't care about beauty. But we can put such a priority on a performance kind of entertainment mentality that it just destroys the thing. In the process, yeah. Oh, so we're just gonna we're gonna go in a bit. Yes, yes. That's right. Right, the reason I'm waiting a bit is because worship naturally leads to service. Right there in the beginning of Romans 12 is where we're going. It's a Bible man right there. It's a Bible man. There you go. That's what it was, John. Yes, all I threw out was terrestrial. I, I drew out terrestrial ball and you just nailed it, my man. That's it. That's right. All hail the power of Jesus' name. That's what it was. He, he hasn't heard a word I've said ever since. <laughs> He's just been racking his brain. <laughs> That's right. That's it. All hail the power. Yes, yeah, such a great song to start your day with. Yes. So worship. And then we talk about giving. And I, I really wanted to put this right after worship again. Because we tend to think of worship as some corporate worship. But what better way to worship God and express your adoration to Him, your dependence on Him, your belief in Him, your affection for Him, than to offer your money to His work and, and say, Here, Lord, here, I trust you. So God commands that we worship Him and have no other God before Him. And then He gives commands to His people to enable them to demonstrate those kinds of hearts, like the Sabbath, right? God institutes the Sabbath for Israel when they're in the wilderness, when not fending for yourself will cost you and the family your life, right? He says, take a whole day and don't go get any food, don't go get any water, don't do any work. And that's, that's a death sentence in a lot of desert contexts. 
And he says, so trust me, show your love for me, your trust in me, your belief in me, your affection and adoration for me in keeping the Sabbath and in trusting me in that way. And that's what giving is. It's saying, Lord, I trust you so much that I'm going to pry my hands off the, the, the idolatrous grip I can so easily have on money and I'm going to offer it to you in your work when my future doesn't feel as secure as I'd like it to be financially. Because you know what? It'll never be as secure as you'd like it to be. As you, that'll actually make you feel comfortable. I have a friend who's a millionaire. And, and he said to me recently, you know, I'm not sure I've got all the kids all through college yet. None of us quite feel, frankly feel that way, but I'm glad that's a goal for you. And then people say, yeah, I'm really strapped financially. And then I, I, I find out what they mean by that is given all of these things that they have in their lives, they're, they're strapped financially. Right? Same way with time, right? We, we can feel like we have no time, but then if you really sit down and add up the way we're stewarding our time, we may have more than we realized if we steward it more wisely. And so, so to, to give, the Bible says so much about giving. It, it says so much about demonstrating the state of your heart before God and the way you're willing to give and get past the point of giving like this, which is part of the process very often. And even when you get past that for a time, sometimes later down the road, you got to do it again with something else at a different point in your life when, when something happened you weren't expecting. And I must tell you, when financial crises hit like they did in 87 when my dad lost everything, and they did in the mid-2000s when so many people lost everything, and like it seems it's about to happen again, I, I actually have wept with people who've lost their jobs, lost their retirement, in those times, I have, and I pray that God will give him a job and provide for him. I do, but I must tell you as a pastor who also watches his 401k evaporate in these times, right? I'm not exempt from this. As a pastor, though, in those times, every time something in me has said, good, okay, all right, now we're going to find out where our trust really is. Now we're going to find out where our confidence, our security has always been. I have a friend who got one of those horrific diagnoses from a doctor. He took these tests and he said, Dave, um, you know, all, all the results aren't back, but based on your symptoms, uh, the result, he said, the result, for some reason, you know, isn't it crazy how long results can take to get back when you're waiting to find out these medical things? It's like, can we figure out a way to expedite that, please? But um, it's amazing the things we can do in, in two minutes. And we can't get the results back. But, but he said to my friend, he said, Dave, this guy's the basketball coach at Biola. He's an incredibly wise man. But he said, Dave, um, the results won't back for, be back for about a week and a half. But you're either going to be fine and it's really nothing. Or you've got six months to live. Wow. I'll see you next week. So, yeah, for, so for 10 days, Dave is saying, well, either I'm fine or I'm going to die. And what he I loved what he told me. He said, Eric, if you had told me I was going to be thrust in that situation and asked me how I thought I would handle it, I would have said, oh, fine. I got, I got my trust in the Lord. I know my eternity secure. I know I'm, I'm good. He said, I was rudely awakened by how unprepared I was for that, thinking I was really prepared for it. 
I have a friend, one of the most godly guys I know. He's going through a health challenge, and, and he is terrified. And it's, it's so good for us to have circumstances sometimes that force us to realize where our security really lies. Nobody really knows how they'll perform in war until they're in war. And I've been told it's shocking sometimes who the heroes are and who the ones terrified are. A lot of time, the big man on campus who everybody thought was so cool is hiding in a corner. And the kid nobody knew who seemed so shy is carrying people out on his back. <laughs> it, until we have real confrontation with the, re the required giving in some way, we don't really get a test of where we are. And so to give ourselves this habit of giving that's a regular part of our life, that is a spontaneous part of our life. I have a, the first guy who ever took me under his wings, under his wing, I thought he just wanted to hang out with me. I look back now and I say, Chris Joseph at an Athletes in Action Summer Project, I was this wild football player. I know the Athletes in Action staff had at least two meetings and the main topic in the meeting was what to do with Eric Tonis because he's embarrassing us on a daily basis here in Fort Collins. Because I was just wild. I, I wasn't doing illegal things, but almost. But um, I love to have fun. But, but Chris Joseph just took me under his wing. They probably said, Chris, we think you can handle this guy. And so and I'll never forget. I, I grew up really poor and with mostly poor kids. But I remember, I'll never forget this. He said, I said, hey, Chris, that's a sweet guy. Then you sweet. I don't think we were saying that back then. I I'd probably said, that's a wicked cool T-shirt. Because that's where I was born in the Northeast. And he said, Oh, here. And he took it off. And he threw it at me. Nobody had ever done anything like that to me. Where I grew up, you kept what you had. And that kind of just generosity that he then demonstrated the whole summer I was with him, I'll never forget it. It had a giving. He's, he has a giving heart that was so obvious. And, and I know he was challenging himself to give financially increasingly every day. And don't assume you have a kind of generosity God sees as generous unless you talk to other people about their giving, about their generosity. I, I'm convinced most guys would be more willing to talk about their pornography issues than their giving. And we sort of use the, oh, you know, do in private so you don't. Yeah, there's truth to that. You don't, you don't make a big deal out of it. Same way with fasting. You know, people say, oh, don't talk about fasting. So everybody thinks no one fasts. And nobody's quite sure what anybody's giving like. But I have a friend who's really generous. He finds it ex exhilarating to give in ways that feel, whoa. <laughs> Dave Talley. Uh, and, and so it's good for me to sit down with Dave and say, hey, how are you or Joni giving these days? Talk to me about it. Uh, it regularly and then in addition to regular, how are you get talk to me about that? And he'll tell me and I'll be like, whoa, maybe I better rethink what generous means. Because it's wild. The New Testament, it, it doesn't give us all detail, detailed things. Like it says, give generously from a cheerful heart. And I want to say, uh, could I get a percentage on what cheerful looks like? And God says, no, no, that's not how I do it. You, you trust me, and as your trust in me grows, you give more. John, you do this for a living. Anything you want to add to this?
Yeah, that's right. So it gets past discipline. It gets it gets past this to yes. How can I give today in a way that's going to be really delightful and flat out fun to see how God uses it and trust that He will. That's right. And and I saw this summer I came over. Oh, the summer, the spring I came over and they were putting all new tents on the wagons at Wagon Train. Right? They looked like all new ones. And I thought, somebody gave to make that happen. And that's going to keep kids dry like in the rain today. And it's going to cover them in the sun. And and it's going to give a cool experience to them. And God's going to use it in amazing ways. And see, when you give like that, you got to have vision. Like people say, well, I don't want to give to, like, the electric bill. I want to give the front line stuff. I don't want to give the tent over a wagon, a wagon train. See, that's so lacking vision, isn't it? I want to earmark it so, so, so it's tailored exactly what will make me feel the way I want to. There's this wonderful ability to say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how God uses this, mostly when I get to heaven, <laughs> but a little bit when, when I'm here on earth too. And, and to get to the point where it's an adventuresome joy to give. And like I've said all along, this is located in the local church primarily. And so there's a, a great aspect of that. And to give the place like Hume, yes, but to give, to give to your local church and watch that go out. Our church is having this massive event this week called Adventure Week, where we it's like VBS, but it's it's off the charts phenomenal. And pe- unbelievers, uh, people from other churches, it's an incredible blessing to our community. And and it's every evening. And and I know that I'm not there this week, and that's hard for me not to be there, but I know that my wife and son worked setting up on Sunday afternoon, and I know that we've been giving as a family, and some of that has gone to reach these kids and these families in our community. I love that. I'm not on the mission field, but every time I give to my church, I know 20% of that's going to missions, and I'm part of that. It gives my life integrity and meaning in that way where I, f- I feel like I'm, I'm being faithful even when I'm not the main agent in those things. Does that make sense? Okay. Good. One more. Serving. Different kind of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. My friend Jerry Root, I've heard him say many times, there seem to be two kinds of people in the world. Here I am, people, and there you are, people. And you can tell who, which one they are when they walk in a room. Right? Are they concerned about everybody seeing their best side and hear their best stories and give the best impression? Or is there a des- uh, my wife, My wife and I will be going to social events and I'll look over in the pastor's side, and I know what she's doing. She's praying that God will give her discernment about one person who will be at this event that, that he wants her to bless, to move toward, to make a difference in, and to serve in that sort of way. And again, like these other things I've been saying, we, we need to have sort of individual ways we serve with regularity, corporate ways we serve with regularity. And, and then a servant-heartedness throughout our days that's led by the Spirit that just picks up a piece of trash when you're walking across camp instead of walking by it. And, and so serving in the local church should just be something very naturalist. I remember my wife and I moved to Wheaton, Illinois, and we went to um, 
to Bethany Chapel, this little Plymouth Brethren Chapel. And actually, I talked to my Greek prof, and I said, hey, where did Jim Elliott go to church when he was here at Wheaton? And he said, well, he actually went to my church. Jim Elliott's this missionary who was martyred in Ecuador um, and had a huge impact. And I said, so he and his wife went to your church? And he said, yeah, and I'm actually married to his sister. Jane. I said, great. And they had, we went to their church that Sunday. They had us over. We went to their church the following Sunday. They had us over. And then the third Sunday, Jane, Jim's sister, came up and said, so it looks like Bethany will be your church, yes? And we said, yeah, we're, we're going to settle here. And she said, oh, wonderful. So how would you like to serve? And then she looked at us and she said, because everyone in the church should serve in at least one way, don't you think? And how, she's like Yoda, yes, Jane, of course, right? Um, but she's an incredible woman. And she even had a job for us, you know, an entry-level job there at the church. She wanted us to start doing. And it was just beautiful to see her challenge us in that kind of way. And so to have a servant-heartedness in general in our lives and then take on responsibilities that, yeah, sometimes feel like a pain because you'd rather sleep late than get there early to work in the nursery or whatever it is, but, but to have a way of serving that's woven into all your day, but then specific things that people depend on you for is very important to, to sign up and, and take on responsibility to serve in ways that are life-transforming. Again, this isn't just output. This is a transforming discipline because we serve the one who said I, he, that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. How can you know and enjoy Jesus if you don't have the heart of a servant and act like one? A servant-heartedness. It's amazing. Uh, Nurse Freddie was here last night. I went over and ate dinner with my daughter who's working at Wagon Train all summer, and as I got up, I picked up my plate to put it back, and Nurse Freddie, who's pulling slivers out all day, right, says, let me take that for you. She's just a servant-hearted person. You know, it's, it's amazing how easily we can become very self-focused. Uh, man, was I ever like this as a young man? I, I was, remember I was in that, like, really beginning phase of dating Donna, where you want to make a really good impression on her parents, so, you know, remember, you remember that phase? And I, it was, I think it was the first time I was ever over at their house for dinner. And she went into the kitchen. She came out with a big, heavy bowl of mashed potatoes. And she handed it to me to pass around the table. And you know what I did? I'll never forget it. I went... <laughs> and she's standing there watching me wolf down this food. And I'm like, what's she doing? And I look up, and she's going, mm-hmm. And I said, oh, oh. And I'm putting the potatoes. No, I didn't put it back on. That would have been nasty. But, but, but you, we can just get like this, right? Dave Holmquist, again, the basketball coach, is interesting. he's getting quoted twice tonight. He said to his team once, I heard, he's got this deep voice. He's really easy to imitate. He said, you know, boys, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who put their shopping carts back and those who leave them in the parking space. <laughs> now, I've said that before. People come up and say, well, sometimes it's good to leave it in the parking space because then the people don't have to go look for it. All right, you get the point, though, right? You get the point, yes? 
Uh, but it's so easy. I remember in my church in Connecticut, I start, just started going there. And we, it was a rural church, big gravel parking lot, back all surrounded by woods. And I remember pulling in, and I saw my pastor parked in the furthest corner of, of the parking lot. And he got there way before anybody else. And I said, hey, John, why do you park way out there? He said, oh, because I want to leave all the best spaces for other people, especially people who really need it, like a pregnant woman or somebody carrying lots of stuff or the elderly. You know, How am I going to take a good space and, and even reserve a little spot for the pastor? He was only in his 40s at the time, a very healthy man. He didn't need the best spot. And I said, wow, it's really convicting because I'll like pull up on the curb, right, and just <laughs> get as close as I can. And at that time, I was like, oh, all right. I, I used to like to ride a motorcycle because I would pull right up on the sidewalk and just walk right in. And I said, okay, it's on. And, and the next week, I made sure I parked kind of almost in the woods past him. And it was like, gotcha. And the next week, he was in the woods. And, and it was fun because the Bible says outdo one another in showing honor. It's sanctified competition. We should all have this mentality to say, okay, not in a, I'm going to do, do you in a one better way where, like I said, my dad says, I owe you one. That's not it at all. But it is, oh, that's a great example. I'm going to follow it and, and up the ante. <laughs> I'm going to do that. So let's, let's just conclude my time by looking at Romans chapter 12. Listen to this beautiful passage, Romans 12.1. It, it encapsulates everything we've been talking about so far. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So don't try to do this apart from his mercy. That's what we've been saying all week. To present your bodies that he's given you. There's a presentation. You say, here, Lord, I'm yours. As a living sacrifice. This is a great description of worship. It's a great description of giving. And it's a great description of service. All three of these things are encapsulated in this beautiful imagery. Present your bodies, yourselves, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And here's the transformation process. The habit of grace that makes you grow and become more like Jesus and grow in your intimacy with God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed changed from the inside out by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect is that beautiful and then we'll end with this verse right here just go to 1 Peter 1 that can be a little tricky to find yes 1 Peter 1 verse 22 listen to this same same thing going on here. Having purified your souls, verse 22 of 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Is that beautiful? So we, we have lives that are, are so wonderfully transformed and different because we obey according to our faith in Christ's finished work 
And we end up being transformed into people who love earnestly, which means we worship, we, serve, we give, and we serve earnestly from a pure heart. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your amazing work transforming us as the Spirit takes over more and more ground in our hearts and lives as we avail ourselves to these means of grace you've given, you've given us through these habits of grace. Lord, help us to stay at it. Help us to have patient endurance. Lord, it's not complicated. It's not easy. But Lord, give us what we need to grow, to be fruitful, to enjoy you and delight in you the way you've created us to. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.